0: Good afternoon and welcome to Simpac Live, where the rubber meets the road. I'm your host, Jeff Matthews, and today I'll be interviewing Paul Hodgson, who is the chairman of the Queensland Manufacturing Institute. Paul, until very recently, has also been the interim CEO of the Scaling Green Hydrogen CRC. He is still on the advisory board. Prior to Paul being in both of those roles, he represented the National Energy Resources Australia, that is the NERA, on the east coast of Australia, where he worked with stakeholders to realise the NERA's vision of Australia as a global energy powerhouse. Paul, welcome. Hi, Jeff. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you for joining me on Simpac Live. Paul, firstly, Queensland manufacturing. You're the man with the finger on the pulse. What's happening out there, and what's happening, especially in the world of sustainability? And especially in decarbonisation and um, and where the world is needing to go, and these new technologies, uh, uh, you, tell, tell, give, give us a, a, a lay of the land. Well, look, uh, look. Where do you start, Jeff?
1: Look, I've been working in sustainability for probably a couple of decades, but it's really the last year or so, and I think the real drive globally, net zero, the sort of agreement to do net zero has really uh, excited a lot of people and kind of really given a definite direction for where a lot of this is happening. Um, and manufacturing is right at the center. We saw through the intensity of the pandemic, how global supply chains were quite precarious. Um, and there is a, uh, uh, we're starting to hear things like sovereign manufacturing and local capability. Uh, people realizing that having a thousand components uh, spread across the world um, and you can only finish your product if you actually have every one of those thousand in place becomes a real risk. Um, And so there's a lot happening. Uh, There's a lot still to happen, but the opportunity for sustainable manufacturing is probably greater than it's ever been, I think.
0: And and in Queensland especially, um, access to renewable resources, you know, almost limitless uh, energy from the sun. You've got plenty of space and there's plenty of sun. Um, but also critical minerals at, um, in the ground that we need for this energy transition, uh, for, for batteries and for solar panels and just about everything we need. We need what's in the, in the, in the ground in Queensland. So are you seeing even the, the mining companies starting to move that way in remote mines and, and looking to solar and, and batteries and things?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, look, Australia is a really, really big country. I, um it's always, even though I've lived here for about 40 years, I still marvel at how big it is, right? Um, you know, it, it, from Brisbane to Perth, it takes you six hours to fly it um, yeah. in, a, in a big commercial airliner. And I think uh, there is that sense that uh, it's building the supply chain. So Australia obviously is rich with minerals. Um, it's been a big part of our export performance um, in iron ore, um, in copper, um, in a whole aluminium and, and bauxite and a whole range of other minerals. Uh, We have a lot here that can be used and using it uh, for domestic manufacturing, using it for international manufacturing is really important. And the scale of what we're looking to do is is really significant. Energy is a massive, massive global industry. It really underpins pretty much everything that we do. Um, Without energy, there's not much going on. Uh, You can't drive your car, you can't get food to market. Um, it, it, it's, it really is fundamental. So if you're looking at decarbonising that energy, uh, you're going to require a lot of minerals, you're going to require a lot of product, um, and that product is also going to have to be recycled. It's going to have to be reused. Um, it creates a massive, massive economic challenge, but also a massive economic opportunity. And places like Australia and places like Queensland that have got significant renewable energy, significant minerals but a great manufacturing capability great research and technology industry uh, fantastic education and training um, and a lot of infrastructure in place Um, it really is uh, an opportunity that's almost limited by the imagination
0: and and Paul you you were you had uh, had a master's in sustainability over 20 years ago um that was that was really at the, the cutting edge at the forefront back then. I mean, you must have been you've been following this longer than the average person, um, and it may not have come in. You know, certainly, you know, uh, industrial sustainability didn't really come into my consciousness until much later. Uh, back in those days, I was sort of more into um, wildlife and, and bird protection and things and conservation. Um, that 20 years you've seen, it, it, it must be accelerating and it must be accelerating at weights that, that are breathtaking to you even.
1: Um, it has. I think it. there was a period, uh, probably around the GFC to be honest, um, uh, around the 2007, 2008. Um, I think a lot of it really uh, was almost put on hold a little bit. I, I finished my uh, Masters in Sustainable Development at Central Queensland University in 2004 Um, And I set up an innovation and sustainability consulting business. I did quite a bit in the clean tech space um, and looking at those supply chains. I did a venture capital mapping project on clean technology for the Queensland government and a range of things. But it's really only now, I think, where a lot of it's coming together because the demand is starting to be there or the need is being there in terms of meeting global and national and corporate and regional uh, net zero Uh, outcomes. And um, no one really knows how to get there. Um, It's kind of scary, but for people who are entrepreneurial, who are people who are willing to be courageous and to lead and to invest, um, the opportunities, you know, for your business, for your region, for your career are are, are amazing. They really are. Um, So it has been moving along slowly at times and fast at other times but now, what it requires is is a lot of people rolling up the sleeves and doing things and doing things together to build out that supply chain to make sure there's value across that uh, that supply chain so that people uh, are incentivized to work together and to and to deliver that impact that we need
0: yes yes um, and, and years ago. Um, for the New Zealand Hydrogen Council, I wrote a tagline, um, uh, and, and it was "innovation through collaboration," because when when I looked at hydrogen back in those days, it, it was like nobody was going to do it alone, when nobody was going to go alone, <laughs> you know. And and until uh, probably until that point, what what I've sort of discovered is there were lots of companies trying to develop things and patent them and hold them very tight, and have uh, you know uh, you know complete the circle themselves almost. But now you're looking at these big circles, these big uh, lifetime circles of product circles, and no one's got all... No one's holding everything. No one's holding all the cards. It's impossible. And um, and so you need that co- collaboration. Uh, you know, how much... Uh, your work in the Queensland Manufacturing Institute, how much uh, uh, collaboration work do you do? Do you bring parties together? Do you see one thing over here and see another thing over there? And do you try and put them together? What You know, if somebody's... Um, is it is it a, a, a big bit of your job or, or, or a chunk of your job?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, Queensland Manufacturing Institute was set up thirty years ago. Uh, it's its thirty thirty year anniversary this year, um, and it was set up as a collaboration between uh, uh, CSIRO, QUT, uh, the Queensland Government through Skills Tech, um, and uh, it has been very much about bringing people together, bringing technology to people, um, bringing uh, uh, apprentices through. Um, and exciting, even now we have a Gateway Industry Skills Program, into, uh, which is funded by the Queensland Government in Advanced Manufacturing, working with 50 plus schools to, to bring talent and to excite people about a career in manufacturing. Um, so very much, uh, that's been a big part of what we do. Um, on major projects, uh, the Industry Capability Network, which is a national network, and in fact also includes New Zealand, Um, we uh, have industry capability network Queensland. So we're a big part of that network and it's about, you know, 80,000 suppliers across the country and how they can get involved, how they can work together, how they can build their capability, how they can be ready uh, for uh, those requests for tenders that come through uh, the system um, as well. So what we want to do is we want to maximise local manufacturing, but we also see that a lot of manufacturing components is going to be required uh, to decarbonize Australia and to decarbonize uh, export markets uh, from Australia as well. Um, A figure that I I love is uh, the International Energy Agency, I think two years ago, um, uh, uh, projected that by 2050 we would need about, uh, the world would need something like about another 40 billion, uh, 40 trillion dollars battery packs, wind towers, fuel cells, solar panels, and electrolyzers. Um, these are massive, massive numbers.
0: Yes, and and this year they predicted another thirty million jobs before two thousand and thirty. That's right. And, and thirty thirty million jobs before two thousand and thirty. So um, it, it's a it, it's a big chunk. Um, and one of the things about uh, true leadership is is um, you don't, you know, leaders and you've seen entrepreneurs also, you know, um, and, and and sometimes leadership and entrepreneurs are so, so intermixed you couldn't, you couldn't um, divide them. You know, getting out of bed, trying to do something because they think it's the right thing to do. Yes, it might lead to good monetization down the road, but they tend not to sit back and wait for government subsidies or, or tax breaks or something like this. They get on and, and do it. Um, how much are you seeing that leadership coming through with Queensland manufacturers? And, and, this, and, and I, manufacturing to me is everything that's not cottage industry. And, so, and, and it includes all parts of that circular economy from, from mining through to, through to recycling and repurposing and refurbishment and, um, and waste as well. Uh,
1: look, there are, uh, I mean, I've worked with manufacturing, uh, particularly in Queensland, but also nationally all my career, um, and it always astounds me, um, and I'm delighted by the quality of manufacturing, the export markets that get built, the domestic markets, the, uh, the entrepreneurship that happens in manufacturing. It's often a sector uh, that gets a bad rap. Um, it's often seen as, a you know, Australia can't compete in manufacturing. Um, Australia, uh, you know, is, is reducing its manufacturing performance, um, but there are You know, there are fantastic examples of clever manufacturers everywhere. The challenge we often find is, you know, you talked about the micro cottage kind of industries. Um, Once you get up to a certain size, how do we keep them here? And how do we, uh, as you grow through a business life cycle, you need different things at different points of that life cycle. Uh, And so how do we kind of keep, I guess, flexible with the support and the ecosystem we build around those companies so that they can continue to grow and grow and grow? Um, and they don't kind of either peter out, um, or they get uh, they get moved uh, moved somewhere else, and you lose that that, that local impact. Um, but there there are there are countless companies uh, attracting venture capital, attracting other capital, uh, winning export awards, uh, winning new markets, developing new products, uh, growing their workforce um, in in Queensland, and a lot of them now, uh, even increasing numbers, are very much doing it in that sustainable. Uh, way uh, around sustainability It may be that they're in energy or they're in waste or something but if but any manufacturer can be looking at uh, how energy efficient uh, their products are, um, are they built for the circular economy? so rather than just a uh, make uh, uh, and waste uh, make use and waste kind of approach, um, how do they build that in how do they build that in so it's not a disposable product? Um, And that changes the business model, so there's people doing that right across manufacturing in Queensland now, um, and I think what we can do is aggregate those opportunities and integrate them a little bit better so that they're they're hunting as a pack, they're working together, um, and they're building uh, multiple strengths into a really solid uh, consortium that delivers an integrated solution for markets both in Australia and overseas.
0: Yeah, I, I I love that term you just used, hunting as a pack. I'm I'm going to bank that one in my in the back of my head, uh, Paul, and credit you at some stage with that, because I, that that that's what I that, that's what I think it is. It's it's to get you know rubber on the road. It's to get traction, in that it, it's it's much better when you've got um uh you know more numbers, more brain power, more uh, backing behind you uh, to to be able to do things. That collaboration, that hunting in the packs going going to be important, and because. I'm also, uh, you know, I, I, I've connected globally as we most are, and, and I know you are through 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 um, LinkedIn and, and your other channels. And I saw a, a program the other day you know, come out of Germany. It was a TV program, and it was about um, making uh, green steel in Germany with with hydrogen. And um and we're all we're all looking, you know, we know it's a hard debate sector, and we know hydrogen's the only way they're going to um, uh, decarbonize that industry. And um. And then you had the manufacturer at the end, the owner of the steel plant, saying, well, you know, we'll need lots of hydrogen. We'll have to import it from countries like Australia. And I I looked at it and thought, well, hang on, you're going to import iron ore from either Africa or Australia, but you know, um, and you want to import the energy, the hydrogen, all the way. It's like, well, why not make it in Australia? You know, it's just... Exporting both the energy and the ore all the way to Germany to put it together as, as steel doesn't make sense. And so, I, the the more I look at Australia's energy resources and its mining resources, it, 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 it's 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 common sense that you've got a, your industry starts there, your foundation, and then how much more you add to it is um it, is uh it, it that's going to be um you know jobs, export dollars, and underpinning all that, that the access to really cheap renewable energy, i.e. E- energy that's costing you nothing because um, it's cost you some capital, um, there are other countries in the world it's going to cost a significant amount. And that's going to change the old economic paradigms. And that means, you know, old economic paradigms built around um, cheap fossil fuels. And so, and I, I use the example of... Um, operating, instead of operating one machine 24-7, operating two 12 hours a day but going really hard with them because that energy is free. So the old economic paradigms built up under fossil fuels are going to go out the door. And the more you look at the new economic paradigms, the more you can believe in this vision of Australia being the industrial superpower of a decarbonised world. And, um, yeah, so, uh, um, and, and so coming back to the next question, you know, is there? I don't see a limit to what uh, Australia can do in the in this sector in a decarbonised manufacturing world. I, I I don't I don't see. Oh, we give up. We haven't got this. You know.
1: No. Well, th- and that's right. I mean, and that's why I think a lot of it is is limited by uh, the imagination and and the leadership and the courage. Um, you talked about iron ore. Um, that's already been worked. That's already been. Uh, considered, right, that uh, it doesn't make necessarily a lot of sense to ship hydrogen uh, to, say, somewhere like Korea and iron ore, um, what you might do is look at combining the hydrogen and the iron ore here, creating an iron briquette, um, and then sending it to Korea for the further steel making, or doing steel here and doing more steel here. Uh, people like Professor Ross um if anyone's read his book Superpower, and I think he's got a new book as well, and he's just set up the Superpower Institute, um, is very bullish on Australia's ability to produce more aluminium here and more steel, um, and which we used to do a lot on the back of base load, uh, cheap baseload coal, um, to uh, to actually regain some of that here, um, but to do it as part of a global world. So it will always make sense to do some parts in market or closer to market. Uh, there will be other strengths and other uh, unique uh, uh Uh, opportunities around the world. Uh, So we do need to think about Australia, but we also do need to think about it in a global context. And there's nothing wrong with an Australian manufacturer making some parts of their products in other places. Um, If you want to be in various markets around the world, you may have a European manufacturing uh, base. You may have a a, a Northeast Asian manufacturing base. You may have a North American manufacturing base. Uh, You may be supplying, uh, uh, receiving certain supplies from different parts of the world. Uh, That's how the manufacturing sector works. Um, It doesn't all have to be done here, but certainly we could do a lot more here. Um, So changing that paradigm is really important. I mean, Jeff, we live in an age now where manufacturers can produce their own energy. Yes. Um, They can put solar panels on the roof. Um, They can even do distributed wind. Um, There's even printed solar now they can do. Uh, They could be potentially producing their own, uh, uh, charging up their own transport vehicles. uh, uh, With EVs, or they could be producing hydrogen with uh, electrolyzer on site, and then they could even take it further. And um, so, there's some really clever things that I think we can do. I think we're moving to a much more distributed model, um, and that actually creates independence and it creates entrepreneurial opportunities as well. Yes,
0: Um, and they and they can also uh, by using demand side response. They can also not only save themselves money, but also uh, provide uh, grid services as well for, for for the grid when it when it needs it. So, um, okay. and, and and a lot of that demand side response, as you, as you know, Paul, uh, it, it's one of, it's one of my favourite su- subjects I've lectured on uh, around the world comes at no cost. In fact, that's why it's not sexy. It's not sexy because no one's figured out how to monetize it because most of it's just common sense. Most of it's, oh, we'll just make a bit more now and a bit less later or we'll switch this off or we'll turn that down. And um, But being able to use, go up in energy it, it, when, it, when it's free and plentiful and you're generating your own, as you said, and to be able to that flexibility of production that's that's the change in economic paradigms that, that that that's going to open up the possibilities of manufacturers having their own and doing certain stuff in it. So yeah, talking about it, that, yeah. Sorry, go.
1: Sorry, I was just going to say. So you know, I mean, and that's the same at the domestic level, right? So we've got solar panels on our roof. We've had solar panels on our roof for maybe four or five years. Um, you know, it's changed uh, the way we operate our house, right? Um, yes. Uh, uh, more likely to put the dishwasher on after breakfast than after dinner, right? Yes. You know, because you, uh, you're generating uh, on a day like today in Brisbane, you're generating huge amounts of uh, solar energy. Um, it makes much sense to use it when it's, when it's being generated, right? Uh Than yes. to buy it back from the grid at a more expensive time when the sun's not shining um, at 8 o'clock at night.
0: Yes, yes. Yes, no. I had a chat to uh, a friend that lives on the Gold Coast, and uh, he went. He's generating a lot off his roof, and uh, he went and changed uh, the timers on his swimming pool pumps and, uh, and the compressors on his on, on his fridge and stuff, just because it makes common sense. Use it. Don't put it back into the grid when, when everyone's trying to and the prices are negative. Use it yourself. Um, yep. So now, and talking about uh, energy flexibility and energy security, tell me about your role with um, scaling green hydrogen CRC. And I'm particularly interested in how you got and, – and for those listening, uh, you've raised uh, – you've committed $160 million from 93 stakeholders, and you're now awaiting, uh, I think it's government approval or government uh, to come up with their bid or, or the, uh, something like that. But also, how you went about it, how you got the rubber on the road. How, you know, I, I look at people like you and I think, God, you must be clever. How did you go about it? Was it shoe leather or talking to people on the phone? Just take us through that.
1: Um, It's probably, look, I mean, really clever team um, and working uh, collaboratively. But what we, I I took on the role as interim CEO, I was invited to late in 2021. Um, And around about this time, I'd been working in hydrogen for a few years uh, at NERA. Uh, We developed up a hydrogen cluster network. Um, But what was changing in the hydrogen space was less of an emphasis on gas uh, which is actually how we produce hydrogen and use hydrogen now predominantly, and, and into what was called green hydrogen. And green hydrogen um, is not a, not a new process. Electrolysis, is, uh, uh, as a, a rye engineer once told me, was too, too wise in some water. Um, but to do it at scale, it's a little bit more complex than that, right? Um, and so we, we went, well, the, uh, if we look across the hydrogen landscape, there was lots of little projects. And we kind of went, at some point those projects are going to stall or they're going to start competing with each other for, unless we build the foundations for the sector. So what we did was we backcast. um, And I think this always works well in collaboration is you backcast and you come up with a very large vision that people see themselves in and see how it will benefit themselves. If we went, here's our CRC, we'd like to raise a certain amount of money so that we can spend that money on research. um, People would go, well, that doesn't sound very exciting. I don't really want to... part of it, but what we said was we envisaged by 2040 Australia would need a terawatt of electrolysis Um, and how much would that be in renewables, how much would that be in water, how much technology would be required, Uh, what the workforce would be look like, Um, and it's really what I would call the foundations. So if I'm just doing a project and I want to build a 500 megawatt electrolyzer, but eventually I might like to have you know 10 gigawatts or 20 gigawatts and maybe distributed, um, I'm going to come up against uh, the supply of technology, I'm going to come up against regulatory barriers, I'm going to come up against social licence. Um, who? Where are the people going to be operating this or, or maintaining it for me or using it for me? What skills are they going to require? Um, where's the water going to come from? Am I going to be connected to the grid? And if I'm connected to the grid, it's not going to be green, it's going to be a mix of green and, uh, and fossil fuels, uh, at least in Australia. Um, and and who's looking after all that shared infrastructure? So if I'm going to need water, who's doing the water infrastructure? Who's doing the electricity? Um, do I have to pay for that? Does it make sense for me to pay for it if I've got uh, eight or nine different neighbours that all want to do uh, hydrogen as well? Uh, maybe we should get together and share that. Um, and what that does require is a lot of new relationships and new consortia uh, to come together. So. Um, we we iterated very much with industry, with research, with government, with community, um, all through 2022, we we uh, I spoke at lots of conferences, I attended lots of conferences, we did lots of webinars, lots of face-to-face and online meetings, probably hundreds if not thousands, uh, we had a database of about 1500 people that we were working with, um, to really work out how do we put the supply chain together, if these are building blocks for building a strong supply chain uh, that's uh, you know, with customers, with suppliers, with enablers, uh, with regulators, with uh, looking at the different policy options, looking at mining companies, uh, looking at all sorts of different things. How do we put all that together, um, and how do we bring this diverse consortium together? And as you said, we ended up with ninety-three industry partners, oh, ninety-three partners, um, eighteen university partners, and I think seventy-five uh, industry partners and government partners. Um, and who pledged $160 million of cash in kind for a 10-year program. Uh, we're now at the stage where we're waiting for the Australian Government to shortlist to stage two, um, and uh, hopefully we will be shortlisted. Um, our ask for the Australian Government is $50 million um, to add into that mix so that we would have $210 million at least over a 10-year period to do real projects uh, to connect up that supply chain. Um, and to build the skills and to build the, uh, the manufacturing capability as well. Uh, so it's a big ambitious task, but I think um, if you raise your ambition, you raise the vision, uh, you have a, a, a sense that lots of people can see themselves in it and can see where they're gonna benefit, uh, then you do build a collaboration. Uh, if you set the bar low, um, it looks transactional, it looks very insular, uh, but if you set the bar high, um you uh you've got more you've got more people that want to come along for the ride want to contribute
0: Mm. oh congratulations you you set the bar high and it's a it's fantastic and uh and and i'm sure it's uh, it's going to get uh tick off from the australian government and move you to the the next phase and we and we look forward to the just before we we go all um hydrogen debate it's it's heating up around uh, around the world um I recently did my own podcast and I had a particular um, aspect of the export of hydrogen. And, and I've said um, that I think it'll, it'll be 80% commun- consumed domestically and about 20% left over for an export trade. And I've linked that to dairy product because that that's globally what happens with dairy product. And dairy is made from the same thing as hydrogen; it's it's water and sunlight, and uh, goes through a cow. And but it's equally as difficult when it comes out the other end. It's it's heavy and it's liquid and it goes off. And and so um so and I, I, I then I, I then said oh well I think it'll be exported in green ammonia. And I've since had my mind um, persuaded that methanols may be a preferred carrier, especially for the um, uh, marine sector. But also, so we're seeing this debate about how to keep it and store it. Um, Is it going to be in in limestone uh, or in in caverns, uh, salt caverns? Is it going to be in um, liquid and cryogenic form? Is it going to be compressed? Is it going to be um, turned into green ammonia, methanol? But we're also seeing a debate emerging in Europe of um, uh, heat pumps versus hydrogen. And um, there's a lot of that uh, talk in the EU, with with a lot of people saying it, it, it's no point mixing it into the gas. That's it, the last thing you'd. It, we've had a rejection of a trial project in the UK wanting to put households on hydrogen, and um, and heat pumps. Uh, and the heat pump advocates are saying, don't even think about household heating. You know, a heat pump's more efficient. I I I. I I look at it and I go, the market will sort that out eventually. People will find it or find its own equilibrium. And I've said that we won't get to decarbonisation without hydrogen. We can't, because those big, heavy industries, they've got no other options, you know, because um, high temp heat is difficult to attain without burning fossil fuels. You're, You're left with hydrogen. So... What's your what's your what's your read currently at the moment this moment in time, knowing that you know these these, these things? Are, can you can you add to that debate or
1: or, or or give us your opinion on it? Yeah, sure. Look, it's a great it's a great question, Jeff, and it's a real love of mine actually because I mean one of the the important things we brought to the scaling green hydrogen CRC was a pragmatic sense, as you've said, which is. Hydrogen is going to be required somewhere, right? Hydrogen's already produced. It's, it's about a hundred million tons a year It's used and it's used in chemicals. It's used in fertilizers um, predominantly, but it's also used in refining petrochemical refining um, um, I think it's about a hundred million. I think it's six hundred and sixty thousand tons I think we produce in Australia each year of hydrogen, but it all comes through methane through steam methane reformation um, one of the um, the things I think is really important is that we go. There's this massive issue that we're trying to do, which is to get to net zero. We're trying to arrest, and we're trying to slow and hopefully arrest uh, the the ravages of climate change, uh, of which we can only really predict uh, how how bad that could get uh, for humanity. I mean, the Earth will be fine; it'll it'll throw us off, um, or it'll uh, uh, it'll it'll survive. But but for us, um, you know, it's a it's an existential issue, and so. You don't throw anything off the table Um, you don't throw any potential solutions off the table and i think you also have sympathy for some people who might actually want to use what they've currently got and reuse it for a new purpose you know there's 10 billion internal combustion engines in the world Um, i've been to places like motor valley in italy uh, last year Um, there is uh, the technology the factories uh, that's been built over decades and decades and decades Of skills and capabilities, and regional economic development, and uh, you know revenue and everything else. Um, uh, You know, I'm not going to wag my finger at people who are looking at uh, renewable fuels to put through an internal combustion engine. Um, It makes sense if you've got gas pipelines, if you've got gas plants, you've got gas infrastructure. um, Sure, look at blending, Um, but I think there will be a mix in the future, and I think. Uh, there's a natural element to this. you talked about the cost of energy. I think energy efficiency is the first one. If you can reduce your energy consumption, then you do that right uh, that's that 's often the cheapest, perhaps the unsexiest way of doing it um, but you know you you lose it or, or or you do your demand response or you shift when you produce when you use your energy um, to actually make sense. Um, then in a place like Australia where we get 58 million petajoules of solar radiation each year um, and I should, I should reference that, that we produce 20,000 petajoules of coal and gas and we're the largest gas exporter in the world and I think the second or third largest coal exporter in the world. So 58 million petajoules of just of solar, forget wind and other renewable resources. Um, we're going to have an advantage in renewables. If we can scale it up, Um, uh, CSIRO will now tell you that uh, wind and solar with batteries is the cheapest form of electricity production. Um, And um, so electric vehicles are going to make a lot of sense. Uh, My next car will be an electric vehicle. Um, My next car will uh, very unlikely be a fuel cell electric vehicle. But in some markets around the world where they'll be importing their renewables and they don't want to import it through a high voltage DC cable or container ships full of charged up batteries, um it's likely it's going to be hydrogen or a carrier such as ammonia or methanol and if that's the case uh, rather than converting it back to electricity, they may actually want to put it into a into a hydrogen network and fuel up hydrogen fuel cell ele- uh, electric vehicles hmm. um so there'll be there'll be different um, there'll be different answers depending on the question in the region uh, in the application and even in the season. Um, as well across the world. And so the mix will be, is very unpredictable at this stage, but I think it's clear to me that it's uh, it's not going to be, uh, there's not going to be one winner. There's not going to be just electrification. Uh, there's not going to be just hydrogen. Uh, there's not going to be just biofuels. Um, there's not going to be just waste uh, recycling and, and use as heat or, or anything. Um, there's going to be a, a significant mix in the future. Um, mm. And uh, and so we, you know, we came from a view of, we don't know what the global market for green hydrogen will look like. Uh, and we uh, we think that you should go for the most efficient, most effective, cheapest, quickest, um, most beneficial, safest uh, model. But where that doesn't work for something else and green hydrogen's the answer, we need to scale green hydrogen. We need to do it efficiently, effectively, and for the benefit of, uh, of the supply chain. Um, and so you know, it's a pragmatic view. I think that we have to, um, and we have to work together. And we can't throw solutions off the table um, on, an, on a basis that we, you know, we, we, we like a particular tool. Yeah, we've got to keep very yeah, no. much focused on the outcome.
0: And, and and one of the one of the points I sort of um, say to the uh, the detractors of hydrogen often like to point out the inefficiency of of, of making it. You lose the energy to make it. But here's the point, is that when we, when we start the learning rate of solar and wind, it means it's doubling every solar's, I don't know, I think 18 months. You know, wind's a, couple, a little bit behind it. And it, it means that once we get to 100% of our energy needs, we're only two years away of producing 200%. And we're only four years away of producing 400% of our energy needs. So we will undoubtedly overproduce. And so the amount of energy efficiency—if you're taking it from, say, solar in in Australia, where it's it's sunny every day and it's and it's land not used for anything else and it's not—it it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you give thirty-five percent or forty-five percent or seventy-five percent. Fossil fuels are not very efficient using it in, 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 before it gets out. So if you take those inefficiencies out, it, it comes down to. Use, storage and transportation, and there will be uh, uh, and no one solution is going to win we need as i say we'll need everything, every solution you can bring to the table to actually because if you look at the numbers to get to where we want to go to to, to stop uh global warming, we need everything and uh and, and on that note, um uh, Paul, uh, thank you so much uh, it was a, a great chat. Um, the listeners I'm I'm sure are going to learn a lot and um, and I have and it's been uh, most enjoyable hosting you on the show thank you
1: fantastic Jeff really uh, enjoyed the conversation
0: thank you